when you're investing out of area, you whether you are in the US or not, your your boots on the ground, your management team, the people you can rely on to 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 service you is are, are very key members of your team and a very key element of your success. Hello and welcome to Pillars of Wealth Creation, where we talk about creating financial success with a special focus on business and real estate. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. Now, let's get to it. Hello and welcome back to Pillars of Wealth Creation. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. With me today, I'm excited to have Hadar Arkibi. Hadar, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Todd. It's great to be on the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, man. Well, I appreciate you coming on and a little bit about Hadar. He started in real estate as an agent in Israel before immigrating to New Zealand in 2003. And he spent his first three years educating himself on trading, uh, on, on trading real estate and working in the vineyards and orchards of central, what it was, central Ota- Otago? Otago. Otago. Okay. New Zealand. So, and, and you have nearly two decades of full-time real estate experience and specialize in long distance investing. And before we jumped on here, we were talking about stuff in, in, you know, Tennessee and in Arkansas. And so you're buying in, in the U S you also have investments, um, in, in, uh, New Zealand, it sounds like. And so, so you're kind of all over, which is crazy. And we're going to get into the details of how you invest in different areas of the world. People talk about different areas of the country. And you said, no, 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 we're going to do the whole world. So <laughs> that's pretty cool. Um, and, uh, you know, right now your focus is multifamily. Uh, you're doing some, some other uh, stuff within, you know, self-storage and mobile home parks and, uh, You've done wholesaling, house flipping, subdivisions, new construction, joint ventures, commercial. You've done it all. So with that said, can you give our listeners a bit more about your background and then you know what your main focus is today? Okay, I'll, I'll try and really summarize it quickly. Um, it's a question that I've been asked a lot. And just on a nutshell, you know, I was born and raised in Israel. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my mom is an American citizen. She, she was born in Chicago, born and raised in Chicago. And uh, she married my, my dad and they moved to Israel. And I was born and raised in Israel. So back in the early 2000s, I actually immigrated to, to New Zealand with back then my girlfriend, now wife. And uh, I really came to New Zealand um, as, a, as a fresh new start to start a family in a neutral place. Israel was quite on a turmoil back in the in early 2000s, a lot of uh, suicide bombers and, you know, not, not a great environment to bring up kids. We wanted to live in the country. We want to have some, some land, have some space. And, um, and we went to visit New Zealand and my wife's sister was actually already here. And we kind of liked the place, English speaking. Prices were quite low of real estate here because uh, back then it was still uh, the end of the world. Um, now the market... Um, really compressed the cap rates and returns are compressed because of you know the availability of people to travel quite fast and being a safe haven and um, being being kind of a landlocked really you know in effect new zealand is basically a combination of two islands um the main cities in new zealand which i've been investing are um kind of peninsula slash landlocked uh, geographically cities 
and a lot of the immigration moved to those big cities. So the demand is very high. The market matured to be markets like uh, LA, San Francisco, Seattle, Boston, you know, very low cap rates. Lucky enough, I got in, in the, you know, when I started. So I managed to build some asset base here in New Zealand. I'm currently in New Zealand and, uh, and, and have significant appreciation. But moving forward and, and adding to my portfolio and wanting to grow uh, my cash flow uh, was, was challenging because uh, the yields are too low. So as an American citizen, about four years ago, I decided to look further afield and, um, and, and, and really do some market research in America. I traveled over and I looked into a few markets, got myself educated and, and starting, started, started small, you know, got my feet wet, wanted to make sure that the team I built, I built or engaged with on the ground in my market was going to be able to perform. So I, I started kind of relatively small and, and gradually um, expanded my, my network and my acquisition. But I just want to mention, um, I did start in New Zealand. Uh, I caught the bag of real estate through the early 2000s. You know, the market of globally was, was really taking off. Um, the, before the global financial crisis, it was a great year, 2003 until 2006. And um, I started as a wholesaler. So I, I, I assigned contract, I flipped houses, I did contemporaneous closing, um, built up some deposit and started buying my, my buy and hold. And that's how I kind of propelled it into, into a larger asset as, as the time went by. How was, the, how was the New Zealand real estate market affected in like the financial crisis? Did they have very similar to, did they, there was there foreclosures and all that kind of stuff similar to the US or was it a different story? There was, it was a different story. Um, New Zealand is relatively um, small market. Right. Uh, but in effect, um, the majority of the pain that was, was more of a pain of businesses where, where, where the funding were, uh, were, were not, not able to renew or some finance companies were going kaput and going bust, uh, which would in effect uh, made them illiquid. So what happened in New Zealand, there are four or five main banks. They are all owned by Australia. And um, there were back then, as you know, in the US, there was no, also in New Zealand, there was no or low doc loans, meaning if you can fog a mirror, you don't have to prove your income as much and you can get, you can get your borrowing. So that was the same case in New Zealand, but there's a lot of finance companies. So finance companies, the like of like, you know, uh, those, those small finance companies that perhaps give deposits, but then they go and lend it and they're able to lend you money on a high interest rate, they charge some fees. And there's a lot of business done with them. And then they're going bust in the, in the GFC. And that, in effect, created pain for some people who owned real estate uh, because they were perhaps borrowing money from them to fund their businesses or even some real estate. So only those people suffered. But as a whole, the prices went down by anything from 10 to 15%. It wasn't really a big deal. Yeah. Um, so we were able to pick up some opportunities because of people who were who were in financial pain in the business and they had to liquidate assets to pump the cash into the business. I had a couple of great deals that way, but there was not a lot of mortgagee sale. And there are rules in New Zealand as well, which are different to the US. You are unable to go. And if you're upside down on your mortgage, meaning you owe more than it's worth, you're unable to just leave your keys and declare yourself bankrupt like people did in Nevada. I remember seeing it in Las Vegas. They left the keys and said, yeah. see you goodbye. See you later, you can have the house. You can't do it in New Zealand. And not just only you can't, 
the, the, the lender are not allowed to throw you out, um, you know, without going a whole process of, uh, of really going through, through a process of, uh, of, of, of foreclosure that way. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. The differences between, you know, countries, obviously we had, we had a rude awakening here in the U S so you go from, you know, living in Israel to moving to New Zealand, doing real estate there. And you you kind of ran into this, well, I'd like to keep on building my portfolio, but probably not going to happen here. So you have to explore elsewhere. How did you come about choosing a market in the U.S.? I actually, it's funny because I just posted an article the other day on on choosing a market and how you do that. And somebody responded and had a smart comment of basically, you know, you can't you can't go through the data points you're talking about and choose a market. It's just not possible. How did you go about choosing a market? I had to disagree with them, of course, because, you know, you and uh, I know that we can. Yes, you can. And, and, and I know that you are very astute and, you know, there are, there are metrics that you look at. Uh, I mean, if you want to buy assets that will generate cash flow, you're not going to go to Boston or LA because it's just not mm-hmm. going to happen unless you put 50 posts down or more or, or, you know, you're going to be spinning your wheels for a lot of time to get a deal. So yeah. my, first, my first approach was to... Um, I was kind of look, talking to people in New Zealand that I know that was doing single housing, single houses in Memphis and, and in Jacksonville, in Florida and various other places. So I, I, um, I went there and I kind of got the feeling for the market. I checked the, of course, the, the first thing I checked was the price to rent ratio. I want to make sure that it's cash flow. So I'm not looking to buy assets in markets that the price to rent ratio did not stack up uh, from, uh, from a cash flow point of view as a whole. Uh, the only market I did travel, which had uh, quite a compressed cap rates comparing to back then Jacksonville or Memphis or, you know, parts of Arkansas, was actually Salt Lake City, which is a great market, had a tremendous growth and tremendous uh, opportunity uh, because it was landlocked as well. So, you know, there's always an opportunity in the market, which is landlocked and there's population and job growth, but the, the horse is bolted, you know, there was no more uh, uh, opportunities for me to, that felt to get in. So. So then we started looking at things like uh, job growth and population growth. I don't necessarily look to something which is a, a, a 5% year on year or something which is extraordinary for most market, but I'm quite okay with steady economy, uh, a steady as she goes market, uh, which had a proof record of uh, maybe not going up and maybe not going down significantly in an in a, in a, in up and down market. So that was quite uh, important criteria for me. I usually want to see job growth of minimum 2% on two years consecutive years. So I kind of like to see that as a, as a good base. Um, I like to have a, a diversified economy, of course. We'd like to see the number of employers, perhaps some large employers moving in, uh, whether they're big box or whether they are now um, things like logistics and expanding of medical and expanding of various other sectors that add to the local economy. Uh, one of the ways that we do that is we actually contact the Chamber of Commerce, we engage with them, we ask them where is the path of progress, do you know of any new businesses that are expanding or coming into town or perhaps opening shop or opening a distribution center or anything like that. Um, back then I looked on unemployment rates, I really like to see, uh, back then up to before the COVID, uh, the unemployment rate almost nationwide was hovering around, as you know, 3 to 3.6%. 
yeah. and that was a really good really good nationwide so but as a whole my my uh, my idea was anything below five percent will will be something to really look into back in 2010 though you know in the really kind of when we were still in the global financial crisis uh, the average unemployment rate was about nine to nine point nine percent um so you know that's that's but, but again it's a recession and i think now in some in most market we are still hovering around six and even 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 higher right. Uh, in uh, in some markets, yeah. Um, the lowest unemployment rates in the U.S. that I kind of researched was about 1.2 percent unemployment in the 1944s. So that's just something that I researched and I took note of that because it's interesting, mm. interesting to look at. You know, perhaps all the all the baby boomers were starting to come out and people are excited towards the end of the World War II and all of that. Um, another thing that we look at is, of course, uh, median income. So I like to see a median income of uh, about 50k per, you know, per household income minimum. Um, I like to really see a, a specific uh, price per per home. So house prices will be in my in my kind of desire area around 100, 120 thousand dollar at least. That that creates, a, if you like, a situation that. Some people will be able to buy a house, but there's going to be a lot of people who are going to choose to rent um, long term, in opposed to being able to afford to buy a house. In saying that, Todd, you know we are in a in a very low environment interest rate, and I do have quite a few friends in the states who are doing single housing. And as I'm sure you know that uh, the housing market now, the single family houses is going crazy. You know, there's so much demand, the inventory is low, and things are turning over really, really quick. And actually predicted to stay like that for at least two or three years moving forward. Um, but still, you know, we are, um, we're seeing relatively good demand for our assets where we are at. We got not a lot of uh, delinquencies right now. We had some tenants that needed some help and some, um, you know, kind of concessions to payment plans and, and that, but relatively, we're relatively good. And I think it comes down a lot to where we are located, where our assets located and where, uh, how we actually do the tenant selection. So the majority of our, of our residents, um, they are actually employed in works that are, are maybe a little bit more essential. And not, not just that, the, we, we did kind of an analytic with a property management company and a lot of them have good money habits. A lot of them are 650 credit scores and upwards, which is kind of something that we find out that was worked to our benefit uh, dealing with people who, who 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 care about the credit score, care about uh, ma managing their uh, you know their financials and and all. That. Yeah, there's a big difference from people who actually care about their credit score and those who don't. And yes, that that makes a world of difference. I, I you know I like some of the stuff you said. Well, I, everything you said, I, I definitely agree with. One of the things that you said that resonates with me is a lot of people want to look for these markets or get excited about these markets that are seeing massive growth, and that's exciting. I get it, but usually with massive growth comes that time of of bust as well. And so I, I'm with you there where I like to see those markets that just have slow, steady growth. I want to see that, you know, 1%, 2% uh, growth. Then that's it. Population growth, you know, job growth. Um, we don't want to see, I should say we don't want to see, but, you know, 
we're not looking for that five, six, 7% growth. And same thing with rent growth. You know, some people get really excited when their market's at the top of the rent growth. Well, what that usually means is, first of all, it's probably too late. Like you, you, you gotta, if you're looking at that and you're deciding that's your market for you, you're probably in it too late. Um, you should have already been in it for five years prior to it. And now you're, you know, you're benefiting from that. But the chances of that actually going the opposite way and flipping uh, is pretty good. And I saw that locally in, in my market. You know, we're a slow, steady market. We typically don't see massive rent growth. And we saw a couple of years where it was five, six percent rent growth. And that's really big for our market. And now just this last year, we saw 10% rent decline. And that wow. just happens. So, wow. Hey, real quick, I just want to let you know about the multifamily challenge that we got going on. It's a five-day multifamily challenge on how to get an offer in uh, quickly, right? So we're going to teach you in five days, five one-hour sessions. We're going to go through the steps and the process to get there. So go to mfichallenge.com, mfichallenge.com. You can sign up. It's free. If you want the VIP, there's a bunch of things that we'll give away too. You, gotta, you, gotta, you do have to pay for that, but hey, it's going to be well worth it. Again, you can get in for free. We're going to teach you how to get that offer across the table, get the LOI in uh, all the steps. So Ellis Hammond and I, Ellis was episode 316. Check, check out his episode. And we're going to be doing this next week. So sign up now at mfichallenge.com, mfichallenge.com and get in there. We're, uh, we're doing it next week and it's going to be awesome. So hope to see you there. So, so you, and you came... You did, you, you got boots on the ground. You you flew over and you toured the markets. Why did you, why did you think that was important versus just, I mean, that's a long flight from New Zealand to the U S very long flight. It's uh, it's 15 hours, just uh, 14 hours, 15 hours, just a flight. And uh, it's very expensive, but uh, you know, when I do something, I grab the bull by the horn and I just go for it. Um, I, I, I don't, I, I want to do it professionally and I, you know, I was, you know, my family, my wife was supportive of, of, of me doing that and understanding the benefit, the long-term benefit that we need to grow the business. And, you know, I want to really generate this, this, this uh, continue generating the passive income and grow that so we can keep living the, if you like, the lifestyle by design that we choose to live. Um, and uh, visiting the market regularly is, uh, is, is a very important step of that because, in the end of the day, um, when you're investing out of area, you, whether you're in the US or not, your, your boots on the ground, your management team, the people you can rely on to, to, to service you is, are, are very key members of your team and a very key element of your success. If yeah. your property management is crap, or if you're unable to, if, as an asset manager, if you're unable to handle some of the unit turns and, 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 uh, and acquisitions, if you like, uh, you know, independently, if you all just want to be a, a turnkey investor and just buy assets from a turnkey company or, or, or just rely on your pr property management to do the unit turns for you and all that, you're going to pay a premium for that. So for me, the trip over was actually to go plant those seeds, grow the relationships so I can, I can actually run the business. I do use my property management to do some things because they can do it more affordably. For example, painting. They got a good painting crew and they can go and turn in a unit fast and very efficiently. But a lot of the subcontractors, I established those relationships. I basically made sure that I stayed for at least two or three weeks when I came over. And it's not just for the, for the professionals 
uh, to do with the unit turns and the management aspect. It's also to do with the fellow investment investors relationship, other, other investment opportunity that you want to be able to do some driving for dollars and identify assets that perhaps will be a good part of your portfolio if you can engage and try and uh, uh, contact the owners and perhaps talk about a potential sale. Um, contact relationship with uh, lenders, very, very important. Number one, you know, number one or two important partners in any transaction, really. Yeah. I mean, you need those relationships that you need them to come and help you when you find a deal, specifically if you find a value add deal, which is what we are focusing on. You know, it could be some hairy deal. My, my latest deal from last year, uh, which I just refinanced, uh, you know, it was 30% it was, uh, economic uh, vacancy. 30% economic vacancy and uh, and uh, 25 25% below market rent. Uh, the oh. entry cap rate was really low, and being being uh, 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 an out of out of state investor, I got quite a little bit of pushbacks from not from the lenders who I've been relationship with and communicating with for maybe three years, but when they took it to the committee, they did not have enough confidence in that deal uh, because I was out of area. Although I'm using an experienced third party property management company. They, uh, they kind of, two of them that said they're going to fund it, they pretty much walked out and said, hey, we, we couldn't get it passed with the committee. But luckily, um, the, the, one of the lenders, community banks, which I established relationship with, and I opened the bank account and I put a few thousand dollars in and I you know, became a customer. Um, that's how you do it. You have to go and do that and set yourself up. Once you choose the market, open a small bank account, put five or you know, $5,000, even a thousand bucks, start even get a secure credit card, start paying for some online subscription so you can start building your track records with them. And they came to the table. So they gave me maybe loan with terms that weren't ideal, but I got the deal done. And now when I stabilized the asset and added a million dollar worth of equity I, within one year, I was able to use that as a, as a leverage with the other lender that declined me. And I went to them and say, hey, you, would you want to refinance it now? And you know they said yes, and they, one credit union gave me really good terms, and I was managed to pull uh, 130 percent of my money, nice. and uh, and now I'm kind of more established in their mind, yeah, because you know I've gone through the process, and uh, if I wasn't traveling, I was trying to to do it from remote control, I would not get that traction, and I, just to share, when I was there, I actually invited brokers that I communicate with to come and walk through the property and I show them what we're doing and how we're repositioning. And also I did that with some, a couple of lenders, you know, three lenders actually. I, I invited them to see how we are almost finishing the repositioning and how we took and, and you have to be present. If you're not present, um, it's very hard to pick up momentum. Yeah, it, you know, I, you're, you're coming here from a totally different country across the world and you're doing stuff that people here just won't even spend the time to do spend some time with these brokers show them what you're doing spend some time with these lenders get to know them build a relationship with them you know make get, create an account get the deposits i mean just you know going out of your way to make sure you're building these relationships with subcontractors with property managers and, and brokers and so on you're doing those things and you're seeing the success. And so many people would have, again, that, that are just like local here would have just given up. So a lender said, look, you don't have experience. I don't like what's going on here. I'm, we're not going to lend. You'd be like, oh man, I'm not going to be able to get this loan. This deal's dead. 
Uh, so many people would do that, but you didn't give up. You pushed on, you figured out a different avenue to go down and you're able to make it happen. And that's so valuable for people to understand that, look, you're going to get rejected and it, it'll come in different ways, but you're going to get rejected and you got to figure out how to make it work, right? You got to figure out how to push forward. And it ended up being a success story in the end. You refinance, you got 130% of your capital back out. Uh, I mean, shoot, even if you got, even if you got your, just, just a good refinance, I mean, just that that's, but you ended up getting some capital back as well. I mean, you know, so that just shows the power of perseverance, right. And, and be able to push through in, in this thing and in, in this and, and, uh, uh, kudos to you for that. What's uh, obviously that's a huge success habit of yours. What are some other success kind of habits or, or tips you can give us? First of all, I would just like to quickly touch on what you said. I agree hundred percent. I think that comes, comes the point when your education is, uh, is high enough for you to, to really pull the plunge and get it going and, and, and start, start doing what you need to do. But the, the, the mindset, constantly working on the mindset is very, very, very important. And, mm -hmm. you know, uh, being in real estate, even being as a, you know, almost 20 years ago as a wholesaler, I used to have big breaks before drinks, you know, frustrated, you can't get any deal. You, you know, you, you, I was, I've been self-employed for nearly 20 years. And um, I was, I remember having months, which I only made, you, you know, sometimes nothing. And, and yeah. you know, so being persevere and persistent and positive thinking and working on your well-being is, is very, very important. It's as important, if not more than anything else, uh, because, you know, and again, surrounding yourself with, with the like-minded people is important. Another, another um, thing which, um, which um, you know, perhaps contributed, of course, it's my morning routines, which I do, which is to do with well-being. Um, whether it's meditation, I like running. Um, I really enjoy doing that meditation every morning and, and running uh, when I can. And I enjoy um, really working on my well-being. Um, one thing that um, I can share is that um, scheduling my time and being able to really uh, be focused on the key elements that will take my business to the next level or that requires to do for achieving my goals. So what we do is basically also in the MIH mastermind, we set up quarterly action plans. So we have three focus areas, which we choose that will require you to implement and achieve for, for towards, that will take you towards achieving your, your yearly goal, if you like. So we do it every quarter. And, after, and under, under three, uh, the three quarter areas, we actually list the steps that we require towards um, achieving those, those, those three focus areas you know, and, and knock them down. So for example, your focus area, one would be, if you're starting out, choose a market. Two, number two will be develop a, a broker, a conversation system, relationship, if you like to pick up some momentum in that market. A, a third one, for example, will be to generate deal flow. So how are you gonna do it? You're gonna do a direct mail marketing, you're gonna do cold calling, are you gonna do text messaging? What are you gonna do? So writing those things down and really having a plan and a daily planner that you write things down, what you need to do uh, on a daily basis is very, very important. Whether you have it on your phone, on your calendar, uh, or, or anywhere that really keeps you accountable uh, and you know, write it down and make it happen. 
Another thing that helped me a lot to scale my business is hiring a virtual assistant. In the beginning, I hired her and I hired to do some admin work, which I did not, I wasn't enjoying to do. So I kind of thought, hey, this is taking too much of my time. Um, I actually rather, I need to call those brokers, but I also need to do this. And if I can delegate the low level activities to the virtual assistant for $5.75 per hour, I'm, I'm much better off doing that. Once I started implementing that, suddenly the floodgates have opened and uh, I'm actually able to delegate to her much more things that I initially even planned to, which it's even simple things, which uh, are reviewing the, the property management, management statements that they send monthly and, and cross-check their expenses or cross-check the, 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 the KPI, the key performance indicators. Make sure that she send me a report every month where we are at with this. And, and many, many, many other things. So uh, walking in your business on the items or the activities that are most important, the most valuable, if you like, to your business is, is, is something that I've been focusing on. Um, what we call the A-level activities in, a, in opposed to the, to the, to the D-level activities, which is admin. It's not adding enough value and you're not enjoying it. Yeah. You want to do what you enjoy. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's so important. And you're going to have to go through that all the time. It's, it's not like this is, it doesn't just, you don't go through it once and then it stops, right? Because we always seem to find other stuff to fill our day with. So you're going to have to, like for me, I just have to like cleanse and go through it, you know, once every, probably I do it probably twice a year. I just kind of go through and go, okay, what, what else can I get rid of? What did I start taking on that I shouldn't be taking on? Um, so yeah, super, super valuable. What's my latest, what's this? Go ahead. My latest thing, my latest thing Todd, just, just yesterday is I'm sending my, my, uh, my accountant, the books now and, and bits and pieces. And yeah. then he come, he came back to me and he say, Hey, what this, what that, what this, and it's all kind of coded. And yesterday I got around to figuring that out and itemizing line items of all those expenses. I never even planned to do it, but I just didn't want to do it. And, you know, instead of me spending two hours trying to break my head to figure it out. Um, she's in the Philippines. She's a little bit younger than me, quite a bit younger than me, probably half my age at least. She got it to me within half a day. Yeah. You know, and I'm, I'm so grateful to be able to, to have that, uh, yeah. which, which, which I didn't need to uh, have a brain damage trying to figure it out. Is, is, and you, you know, if, you, if somebody is hiring a VA and they're happy with her, there's one tip I can give, treat them well, give them a bonus by the end of the year, because if they're good and they're reliable, you want to keep them. And that's what we did. We got, we gave a two months bonus and she, she was really stoked, you know, for Christmas. And it's very important because they are very valuable for us. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and you're not paying them a lot of money. It's a lot of money for them, but you're not paying them a lot of money and a bonus that doesn't seem that big for for you, it can be very big for them. So yeah, I agree. Um, what's a mistake that you've made along the way and how can others uh, here learn from it? Okay, so there are potentially, um, you know, over the years, few, few mistakes, but one of, the, one of the biggest mistake that I would say is overcapitalizing on a deal. Hmm. So when you buy an asset and you, whether, whether you, you know, there's no emotion involved, generally speaking, there is no emotion involved. I looked at the numbers and I, and I, um, and I, uh, and I move on. I had, I had a couple of deals that 
didn't go well. Um, and one of them was a can of worms. So basically we had to keep pumping money into the deal and basically to get it to a position that if we sell it, it will be something that it's worth selling. Um, and uh, more often than not, you know, we had to, we, in those two deals, we had to spend more money than we actually planned to. And uh, we, we, in one of them, we broke even. In one of them, I lost about $30,000. No big deal, but, uh, but it is. I mean, but it's a learning curve. So when you go into a deal, whether you fix and flip or whether you're buying an apartment community or 10 unit, 20 unit, 100 unit, you don't want to spend more than what you need to spend to receive the NOI or the, or the, or the return on investment that you're actually planning to, to achieve. And yeah. one of the ways to do it is to really consult with your property manager or, or, or really um, you know, consult if you're flipping and perhaps consult with your, with your realtor who will sell your, uh, your asset for you or an appraiser or anything like that. So um, overcapitalizing, it's a, it's a big thing that people have to watch because every money that you spend more than what you, you actually plan to or need to, uh, you're taking down from your bottom line. Um, you know, very important. Yeah, and you, so you're saying over-improving, do, doing way too much on the property. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. De- definitely. Uh, definitely. Uh, and, and easy to do, right? Because you go, well, you know, I'd like to have this and we want to make this better. Uh, so it's easy to do. It's easy to overcapitalize is easier. Is easy to under as well. I mean, you know, some people want to be so cheap. They don't want to do anything. I, I think one of a, a mistake that I made early on, and I can remember this specifically, is uh, my very first rental property, I put in the cheapest stuff possible because I didn't have any money. I just did. I didn't. And so I, I did everything as cheap as I possibly could. And I found that we had to be there all the time doing repairs and maintenance. And I was doing the repairs and maintenance a lot of times with myself or I would send people, but it's costing me so much money on that. I realized very quickly that we have to also make things quality. You know, <laughs> and, if, you keep it, if you keep it long term, you're better off spending a bit more. So it's more robust or it's a long, long term, yeah. uh, less maintenance ongoing. One more thing that you have to, to really keep in mind when you are um, looking into buying real estate. Never be a motivated buyer. Yeah, I've done it. I was yeah. in 2015. I had a very, very I was looking for a development site. I wanted to buy a site with a buddy of mine. Uh, and de- develop free, ha- t- uh, free townhouses. Uh, the market was uh, very strong and we had no deals for a long time. So we found this deal that was touch and go if it's actually going to work or not. And we entered the deal, we got the deal and the margin was quite a bit um, skinnier than what we wanted to, but we, we went in. And with ground up construction, things could actually uh, go wrong. And if they go wrong, it's typically a considerable amount of money. Yeah. So. What happened was we needed to get a consent from the consent and agreement from the neighbor to, to that will allow us to have uh, to shift the stormwater to the boundary so and they can tap into it again. So they were tapping into it to, to drain the, the stormwater, but we needed to shift it because we didn't want to build over it because that would mean uh, bridging and it will be more costly. So the neighbor was very friendly in the beginning and said that he's going to do it. And at some point he's suddenly gone blank on us. Uh, we didn't know if he wants like uh, money, like, you know, maybe we need to bribe him to get him to agree or, or what the hell is going on. 
And uh, it took us about uh, 18 months to actually do it for me, being really, really, really persistent uh, with him and not losing it and really cultivating the relationship. And in the end, we had to give him, I think, two and a half grand or something uh, uh, to agree. But I waited for the right timing. Uh, he wanted to move up some statues in his, in his, in his, in his garden. And he had to get a, a little uh, truck with a, with a high hub crane at the back to go over the, the, the fence and lift those, lift, those, uh, lift those statues, very heavy statues or something. So I used that opportunity. I told him, hey, neighbor, you know what? We're more than happy to do it for you, but we need you to sign the dotted line. And he did. And, um, and, and, the, and, the, and the, the moral of it is that, you know, we were, we were anxious to get into a deal. There was not enough margin. There's not enough room for error contingency, if you like, to allow for an extended holding cost or a shift in the market also that happened in that particular deal. The New Zealand government introduced a loan to value restriction. So when we mm -hmm. wanted to sell, we actually decided not to pursue with it because the neighbor was a pain and we said, let's just sell it with a permit, you know, with the building consent to go and build those three townhouses to another developer. But the New Zealand government introduced a loan to value restriction, which suddenly any property which is not your residential home you'll have to have a only 60% only loan to value. So suddenly the market of pool of buyers has really shrank because yep. to do a development of let's say 2 million bucks, 2.5 million bucks, suddenly they need more money to get in. So yep. that shifted the market and I ended up losing $30,000. But I learned so much. You know, the, the one thing that I learned was don't be in a hurry to, 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 to get into a deal. Don't be a motivated buyer because you're going to end up doing a mistake. Rather be patient than not. And number two, actually that period of time in my life was very stressful. I was, I was really stressed because I had a hillock over my home and I used half a million bucks to put into this deal. And at some point when the neighbor went dark on us, I just didn't know what, when, whenever is it going to end? You know, I was like, what, you know, so I take, took debt over my house and I'm paying interest was, you know, and, and, uh, and all that. So I was really getting quite stressful time of my life, but it was a pivot time of my life as well. That's the pivot of time of my life, which I'm grateful for it, is when I started meditating and, and really caring about my well-being uh, more intensively and, and more on a regular basis. So mm -hmm. everything that happened to you in your life, look at the bright side and uh, it could be a blessing in the sky. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's, that can't, yeah, I mean, that, that can't be more accurate. You know, every challenge is an opportunity for improvement. Every challenge is an opportunity to discover something about yourself or your business or, or learn how to improve. So absolutely. What's a, we're going to have to wrap up here. What's a favorite book um, that you can recommend to our listeners? Well, I, uh, you know, I, I read, I read a lot of books. I kind of try and I'm not a fast reader, but I, I read, you know, a few books a year. I just go from one to the other. Um, I can recommend two books. I can recommend three books. One book is uh, build a business, not a job by uh, David Finkel from, uh, you know, Maui mastermind. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's a great book that helped me a lot to, to scale my business in terms of creating systems and, uh, and, and getting to, actually understand that uh, you want to be walking on your business is not in your business it's quite yeah. a good easy practical book number one number two the slight edge by uh, jeff olson great mindset book really really good uh, book in terms of uh, um really 
doing those little actions and things that will really make a difference and uh, propel your life to the next level. Um, and of course, the, the, perhaps the compound effect by, uh, I think it's uh, Darren Hardy, yeah. which is uh, things takes time to see the progress, but if you keep doing it, if you're doing it the right way, it will compound and you'll get the result that you want. As the saying goes, if you keep doing the same things that you've been doing, you'll get the same results. If you want to take your life and you want to take your business to the next level, you need to start doing things differently so you can get different, better results. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, Great books. Um, Last question. What are your three pillars of wealth creation? Three pillars of wealth creation. Yes. Tell you what, uh, I actually got the uh, uh, five elements of business success. So I'm going to run through them quickly because that's really what I practice. One of them is fo- number one, focus. Try and stay focused, avoid the shiny object syndrome and become an expert in your field. Know your market well, know your, your niche. Number one. Number two, have a measurable action plan. And I'm a great believer of a vision board as well. I got a vision board here in my office. I got one in the bedroom. I like to see, I like to visualize uh, what, what, where I'm going, what's my why, what is my driving force behind me, and uh, kind of a broad look of not just business, also well-being and, and family and, and stuff like that. Number three, proper time management. Very, very important. We talked about that. Number four, understanding your finances. Not just, you don't have to be an accountant or a CPA or you know, anything like that, but you, you should know what you can afford to buy. What, what are you, how are you going to uh, action, you know, transaction if you need to, whether you're going to use your 401k, EQOP, retirement plan, what you're going to do. You need to get clarity about that, whether you need to raise money, partner with people, get clarity where you're at. And number five is accountability. Mm-hmm. Accountability is very, very important. A lot of people start uh, uh, the, the, the journey. They even go for some coaching or they go to you know, a couple of seminars, but they got no accountability to actually keep pushing them. And the accountability is very important, whether it's a coach or whether it's your business partner or your wife. Um, very, very, very important. You know, the saying, accountability is the glue that tie commitments to results. And that's mm. just... We have to do accountability is the glue that tie commitments to result. Very, very important. And those are my five elements. So th- these are my core focus things uh, that I keep in mind for business. Yeah, man, I, I love them. Focus, measurable action plan, time management, understanding finances and accountability. Great things. Well, look, Hadar, really appreciate you joining us, taking time out of your day and uh, tons of value you're able to give. Uh, how can our listeners get in touch with you, learn more about what you got going on? Sure, just visit me on the on the mihmastermind.com website, mihmastermind.com. Um, or you can call me if you like or text me on my mobile. Uh, it's a US number. It's a 501-251-8201. And uh, yeah, I look forward to chatting with anybody who wants to chat and discuss markets, real estate, multifamily. Always happy to connect. Awesome. Well, again, appreciate it. And you have a fantastic rest of the day. Thank you, Todd. Thank you very much. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I appreciate you being a loyal listener. Say, I would love to have you go on to our Facebook page and subscribe. Uh, give us a thumbs up. 
go on to iTunes or wherever you listen and give us a rating and review. Don't forget to subscribe. Your rating review just helps us push this out to more and more people and continue to grow our audience and hopefully positively affect a ton of people out there that really need this and, and want this. So uh, the other thing I've got for you is a free ebook on my website. So go on to VentureDProperties.com, VentureDProperties.com and download our free ebook on real estate and on syndication. And I've got some data points in there, some really good stuff for you. So I'd love to have you take a look at that. It's free. I'm not expecting anything from it. Uh, and also look, if you want some help in multifamily, want some help learning, growing, getting your business off the ground, I would love to talk to you about what it would look like uh, to work with me potentially and see if that's a good fit. So you can go to coachwithdex.com and check that out and uh, we can definitely have a, uh, a call. Thanks a lot for listening. You make it a fantastic rest of the day. I'll catch you on the next episode.